In this series, we'll be walking through the book of Nehemiah, a man that had a calling from the Lord and responded to that calling with action. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning, good morning. Say it twice. It's twice as nice. Yep, see? All right. It is Sunday morning, and we are back to the series of Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah? Last place we left him, he had completed the Dung Gate. It was a special project going on in Jerusalem, and uh, Dung, Dung is a funny word. And so uh, fences rebuilt, wall is rebuilt, gates have been hung, his enemies have been cast down before his feet, and now we, we switch into uh, chapter 8, which is more the spiritual journey for the uh, Israelites there in Jerusalem now. And it's really cool how that worked out to have done 1 through 7 before Palm Sunday and then Easter and then be able to pick up 8, which really does walk through the next phase of Nehemiah's leadership, which is helping the people get back on track spiritually. So would you do me a favor and stand with me? And we are going to read Nehemiah 8 standing. Why, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. In case you're wondering, that's how I imagine you all sound when you ask, Why? (laughs) Why do I even make those jokes? Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to... Oh, wait, are you reading with me? Did I say read with me? Okay. Here's the deal. Nehemiah 8's really long. And you are going to stand for all of it because it has to do with the sermon. But it'd be better to just let me read it. We get into a section of names that just gets weird. So... <laughs> now I kind of want to do it with all of you reading with me. Because that would be awesome. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to read the word, and you can follow along on the screen behind me silently to yourself in your head. Start over. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matithia, Shema, Aneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padeah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashabadana, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. See how much fun that would have been if we were doing that together? <laughs> Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because, again, he was standing up above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down, worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Not doing that today, just the standing thing. The Levites, here's the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Jamin, Akub, Shabate, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, 
instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood, there's that word understood or understanding again, what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is a holy day to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and, some to those, and give some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention once again to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in the courtyards, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and on the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile, the whole company that had returned from exile, built for themselves temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that very day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra would read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with regulation, there was an assembly. Would you bow your heads with me as we praise? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reading of this word. Thank you for allowing us to gather together in public assembly and study it and know you and hear your heart. Would you speak uh, boldly and loudly to us, Lord, sometimes deaf sheep that we are? Would we understand the greatness of your majesty and would we understand the prominence of your word in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you can see now why I had you stand, and we're going to talk a little bit here about the standing that was done in the, in the time spoken of, but Elizabethan England. Elizabethan England is a time period from the mid-1500s to the early 1600s when Queen Elizabeth reigned, right? My wife would be very proud of me for knowing that. Um, the, uh, it's also the time when the Bible became front and center. There were two main religions, Catholicism and then Protestantism. And Protestantism became sort of the head of the culture. The Bible became the head of the culture. It's considered the golden age of England, a time when the uh, Bible and the values of Scripture were spread not just to those who were believers, but all over the land. And uh, it, was a, it was a prosperous time for England. Well, when the pilgrims came over, American statesman Daniel Webster said this, when the Amer pilgrims arrived in America, the fathers brought with them the same reverence that England had for the Word of God, and the Bible came with them. He says, it's not to be doubted that to the free and universal reading of the Bible, 
should be ascribed and indebted to for the civil liberties we enjoyed. The free and universal reading of the Bible. I want you to catch that because that isn't just you grabbing your Bible and sitting in your living room and reading it. That is the public proclamation. That is the the man standing on the wooden uh, table and being able to speak so all could hear him as Ezra did. And there is something in that. There is a power in that. Woodrow, President Woodrow Wilson said, America was born to exemplify the devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations in the Holy Scriptures. That was a president of ours that said that, that this is why America rose to greatness. This is why in such a short time we rose to the level we are currently at now. And oftentimes the problem with that is what we see played out throughout history is when you get to the level we're at now, pride apathy, boredom begins to set in in the people, and we forget the exact reason of what made us so successful in the first place, right? So when God's people get away from loving, reading, and obeying the word of God, what happens? They lose the blessing of God. We see this time and time again throughout not just Israel's history, but as you move past Israel into just the history of the world, you realize that when a nation who starts off under the blessing and the righteous hand of God moves away from it, moves away from the principles of it, God also removes his hand from them. And so here, as we move through eight chapters 8 through 13 over the next few weeks, we're going to start off in 8 here with the instruction of the people. This is the beginning of the spiritual side of establishing the foundation of God. Right, we already talked. The walls have been established. It's time to go after the spiritual side. So there's three basic responses we're going to look at here this morning. The first is this. Understand the word of God. It doesn't help if I just tell you, do what God says, do what God says. Don't do that because it makes God angry if you don't understand why, correct? And so with this in mind, Nehemiah knew that, Ezra knew that, they were given the understanding by the Lord that the people needed to know the word. They've come out of exile. The word hasn't been publicly read in years, decades, probably hundreds of years. Has not been publicly read in a forum like this. So they must understand the word of God. And here's the thing I'm going to start off with. The Bible is not, did it get dark in here? Do we want more light or is this good? Anyone want to light a candle and just set a mood? We're good? Okay. Turn it up. Turn it up. Let's turn it up back there. Um, The Bible is not a magic book. It's not about incantations or reciting. We don't memorize scripture so that way we can say it over and over again until we feel better or until we change something by speaking the scripture over and over and over. That's not the purpose of it. The Bible becomes valuable when you understand what it's saying. Can you get that? It is not about a recitation of the mind. It's about an understanding. And when we understand it, then the power from within is released into our life. You say, well, that's crazy. Maybe. But let's look at history. Let's look at what's going on here. Six times in this chapter, we find this word understanding mentioned. Nehemiah thought it was so important for those who would read his historical context of what happened there in Jerusalem that he made sure over and over again to say the men and women and those who could understand. And then those who could understand were present in the assembly. And the Levites helped those out in the crowd understand, understand, understand. Over and over again, we get to this point where it is a purpose of our Lord that we would understand 
his word, that it not be confusing, that it not be something that only the elite or the learned can get to be a part of, but that every man and woman who would have an ear to hear and an eye to see can see it and hear it. And this is what Ezra and Nehemiah, as they are helping to lead this group of people at this time, they're establishing this. And so in the parable of the sower, right, Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and 18 through 23, the emphasis is on understanding the word of God. As Jesus tells this parable, he compares it to receiving and understanding the word of God like a seed landing on good soil. And when it lands on good soil, it will bear good fruit and grow deep roots. And Ezra is the ideal man to lead this. He's the ideal man to make the chief priest. And we can see that. If you go back, go back to Ezra chapter 7, read chapter 7, especially 10, you'll see why Ezra was poised for this position. He wasn't just selected randomly. God had been preparing him as he came over there with with the second set of exiles, and now, or the first set of exiles, and now this is the part where God is ready to use him. So the first thing he does in understanding the Bible is he's got a pretty important job, and it's he brings the book. He he brings the Bible. You know, if you're gonna be a chief priest, it's good that you, you have one of these. In his time, there wasn't one underneath the seat of the person in front of you, right? Like we say almost every week here. He had the Torah. He had the law of God as written down by Moses. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had it. It was a big scroll. There wasn't just many of them copied and made. And at the time where they were at, he may have been the only one who had it. And then oftentimes he would teach it and others would begin to copy it down as the other rabbis and the other priests would learn it and then they would continue to teach their disciples. And so the first thing he does is bring the book. Pretty big deal. Brings the book, brings out the law as he stands on stage. Again, the people haven't seen this. They haven't had it read to them in such a long time. And as he brings it out there, we learn that it is on the seventh month, which in the Jewish calendar is like the beginning of our new year, okay? So the timing is even God's timing in here in how uh, the people are going to get their spiritual foundation back again. And it starts with the Feast of Trumpets, which is the first day of the seventh month. And the Feast of Trumpets is what God gave to Moses, and it was supposed to be like a Sabbath day, a rest day. No customary work is to be done as you prepare your hearts for what's to come, the rest of the feasts that are to come. The Feast of Atonement, which is to come on the 10th day, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the 15th through the 21st day, which is the joy, the encouragement, the eating of the sweet uh, foods and drinks and all of that. And this is the time the Lord has picked for the nation to get right with him again. And so when you see this, you realize that the book that Ezra brought is the law. It's those five books. And um, he's going to read from it. Now, he's not going to read all five books to the people standing there. That would just be crazy. No, it wouldn't be crazy, but that would be a lot. He is, most likely, historians say, read the entire book of Deuteronomy. So he opens the book up, or the scroll, he blesses it, and the people stand up, right? The people stand up. Get this. This is one of those parts of Scripture that you just love. They stood from the morning until the late afternoon when the teaching was done, no less than five to six hours hearing the Word of God preached. Five to six hours. And they did this for more than a week as they prepared from the Day of Atonement, uh, well, from the Feast to the Day of Atonement, and then from the Atonement to to the Tabernacle of Feasts. Five to six hours you stood there and you listened to how God 
interacted in the lives of your ancestors, how your ancestors interacted with God. Who is God? What does he mean to me? All of that. Can you imagine that? I mean, we saw how long Nehemiah 8 was, and we stood for it. Imagine five to six hours. Now, here's, here's what I love as I begin to read this. Is there was such a hunger in the people of Israel there, the Israelites, to know their God. They wanted to know him, and they wanted to understand him. You know that same hunger exists throughout the world today and has existed. Areas of the Soviet Union and the communist bloc there, there would be people who would travel for hundreds of miles to get to hear a preacher speaking, oftentimes not even in a language they understood, just to stand and listen for days because they knew that the word of the Lord was being spoken. In China, Bibles are so limited in certain parts of China that when they deliver them, if you've seen this, they will take a Bible and tear it into pieces and hand out the pieces of the Bible, and the people will read the parts that they have, memorize whatever few pages they got, and then trade them with other people because there's such a deep hunger for the Word of God. You see, this wasn't just any writing that Ezra was standing up. This wasn't just any earthly king making a declaration. This wasn't an act of war. This wasn't something to to get the troops together and excited. This was the word of God Almighty given to your people, your, your forefathers. And you haven't heard it for many of them in their generation. And now here it is. And it's going to be read by a learned priest. And then more than that, Amongst the assembly, the Levites, those names that I mentioned, they were out in the crowd. And they, they, those 13 men were spread out amongst the assembly. And as, as Ezra would be preaching from, uh, again, the Torah, they would say something and someone would say, well, what does that mean? And the Levite's job was to explain it. Why? So they would have understanding. If there would be a break in the reading for any time, there would be uh, our historians tell us that they would then take that time to answer questions. All right, from what you just heard that Ezra preached, any questions? So that there would be understanding. It is sort of the first, not the first, but it's one of the primary examples we see in the Old Testament of church and then small groups. See that? Public proclamation of the word, small groups where you break the word down and you apply it to your daily life. Because This isn't church. This, the public proclamation, is not just all there is to church if you aren't engaged in the corporate understanding of getting together and saying, what was he talking about? I didn't understand that. What's the thing with the dung gate he mentioned earlier? And then he mentioned a water gate? It's a different gate. (laughs) They remained standing while the law was read. 1 Timothy 4.13 in case you're wondering, that's just an Old Testament thing. That's a Jewish thing. First Timothy 4.13, we are commanded to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Why is that so important? Why is public reading of Scripture so important? And, and if it is so important, if it's a command given to Timothy, and so much of how we build the church today is on the commands of what we see in the New Testament, and we try to build our churches around that, then why can't you walk into any Christian church, any church that sees Christ as our Lord and Savior, and hear a public reading of His Word? Why is it more about 
a couple verses picked out or a couple pithy catchphrases picked out from the scripture and then the rest of it is the pastor's thoughts and ideas. Why about the public reading of scripture? There is power not only in the public reading of scripture but there is power in the public corporation of worship as well. Did you know that? There's a difference between you singing in the car and you coming here in one voice and singing to God. It's why we worship together. There is a unifying presence when God's people come together and one, worship him together, and two, listen to his word being read aloud together. There is is a power in it. There is a reason Paul did not neglect to tell us to continue to publicly worship. There's a reason the Elizabethan England is considered the golden age of England. There's a reason America rose to such significance because when we, all of those nations started, they started with uh, unashamed public readings of God's word. Now, to stand in a public school or a public place and read God's word, you are a lunatic or can be arrested or are violating other people's rights. That's how far we've moved from it. It's now something that is allowed inside these walls. And you're considered a rebel, or you're doing something dangerous if you were to actually go and read this outside these walls, even to people who want to hear it. And that's America. That's America right now. So he brought the book, he opened the book, Lastly, he explained and read the book. You see, common people didn't own the copies of the scripture, and when it says distinctly in verse eight, that means the law was explained in a language the people could understand. They couldn't understand it. We do need new translations of the Bible, not because the Bible changes, but because language changes. So if you're in here and you say, King James only, I got it tattooed on my arm, King James only, then uh, slow, slow your roll there a little bit because there are denominations, there are Christians who believe that's the only anointed version. Granted, it is the one Ezra was reading from here, but the fact of the matter is, take a moment with that. The fact of the matter is, it's just not true. So let, let, let's look at the earliest English, right? Let's look at the earliest English, John Wycliffe's version of the Bible. Let's see, you guys know John Wycliffe? You might, some of you might own the Wycliffe Study Bible. John Wycliffe used one of the oldest versions of English, and I want you to see, listen to this passage here in just a second. I'm gonna po- I'm gonna, we're going to put it up on the screen. But this is the English that John Wycliffe would have been studying, and what if this is how you would have had to have learned this? <clears throat> All ye, I lost my place, <laughs> that trulin and teen charged come to me, and I shall fulfill you. Take ye my yoke on you, and learn ye of me, for I am mild and meek in hurt. And ye shall find rest to your solace, for my yoke is safe, soft, and my charge lit. I don't know why I speak that way when I do, but I do. I've read it many times like that. But there it is. Why aren't we all just reading that kind of English? That's, come on, that's direct. This is 640 years old. This is about 1382. This is Wycliffe's version. Ezra reading from the time Moses wrote it down, that's a thousand years. You think dialect changed? Do you think language changed a little bit? You bet it did. And so the purpose of the Levites, the purpose of his reading, and the reason the word understanding is used so much is because what is the point of reading that if none of you understand it? 
What's the point of teaching in such a way that the pastor from the stage doesn't teach so that all who are present can walk away and understand it? And this is what's going on here. There is an understanding to the Word of God that releases the power of God. And as the Levites assisted Ezra in teaching the law, as we know from Deuteronomy, this is one of their ministries as Levites. We see a balance between the public proclamation and the personal application of the gospel. Both very cool, very important to the restoration of Israel. Secondly, first is understand the Word of God. Second, rejoice in the Word of God. As Ezra read and explained the word, the assembly's first response was one of conviction and grief. Did you notice that? It said, as he read the word, the people began to weep. Why are they weeping? You go, they've been standing for so long. No. (laughs) Because they're convicted. Their hearts are convicted. They're hearing God's word. They're hearing for the first time God's heart towards the people. They're seeing their, four, their ancestors' mistakes, and they're realizing we've fallen into that same pattern, and conviction has overtaken them. And the Bible says that they grieved and they mourned, for they realized how far away they had fallen from the heart of God. Conviction. Romans 3.20 says, For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, the law cannot save us. Galatians 3.24, it can only convince us that we need to be saved, and then point us to Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the law. And that was the purpose, as Ezra read this to the great assembly, as it pointed people back to God. The word of God brings conviction and leads to repentance, but it also brings us joy. For the same word that wounds also heals. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name. Psalm 19.8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 119.111. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. There is a joy that comes with knowing and reading the scriptures of God. There is a joy that comes from understanding God's word. And as God's children, it is true that we carry burdens and we know what it means to weep. But we also know what it means to experience transforming power of how God turns sorrow to joy. I want to talk about that for a second here. The secret of Christian joy is to believe what God says in his word and to act upon it. That is, if there is a secret, that is the secret. Believe what it says in his word and then do something about it. Faith that isn't based on the word is not faith at all. It's superstition or presumption. Catch that? If my faith in God is not based on his word, then it's just superstition. It's just tradition and it's just presumption. Joy that isn't the result of faith is not joy. It's just a good feeling that will soon uh, disappear, and faith based on the world will produce joy. Faith based on the word of God, I'm sorry, will produce a joy that will weather any storm. This last week was tough for us at LifePoint here. Just lots going on. Lots of sorrow, grief, pain, difficulty. And as I studied this and had to look at trying to apply it to my own life, it was difficult personally. To say that in the midst of some stormy times this week and future weeks have ahead, Lord, I have a lot of sorrow and pain. How do I turn that to joy? How do I turn that to joy? 
and it gets to our third point, which is obey the Word. Understand the Word, rejoice in the Word, and obey the Word. If I understand the Word, and I rejoice in who the Lord is because of my understanding, and I don't follow it up with obedience, I'm fooling myself. I'm, f I'm fooling myself. I'm pretending that I'm something I'm not. I love Jeff's testimony this morning. I thought I was doing great. I thought I was giving God what he needed. He had me on Sundays. I told people I was part of a church, but I was just fooling myself. And like a good father, he brought Jeff to a place of understanding. He brought Jeff to a place of sorrow and pain, which ultimately led to his greatest joy that he's continuing to live in to this day. Do you see that? And he had a choice. When he got on his knees, when he did, did he tell that part of this? He got on his knees and wept before the Lord. When he did that, he had a choice. He could have walked away from God. He could have said, I'm done with you. You have not come through for me. You have frustrated me for the last time. I'll figure this out on my own. Or he could have fallen his face before the Lord and said, what, what do I need to do? And you all have that same opportunity. I have that opportunity as well. To say, Father, what does it look like to be in obedience to you? John 4, 34 says, To the believer without joy, the will of God is punishment. But to the believer happy in the Lord, the will of God is nourishment. Can we take a moment there and just, just appreciate that verse? To the believer without joy. So John is saying it is possible to believe that God exists and to even be his child but if you do not have joy in it, then God's will for you will be a punishment every single day of your life. But to the believer with joy, the will of God, the word of God, the ways of God will be nourishment to your soul. It will be the very breath, it will be the very food that gives you strength. Isn't that interesting? You ever met that believer who's just not happy? You sitting next to him right now? Don't, just give me two blinks. <laughs> I see it, thank you, I got you. Just two blinks, it's a safe space. The celebrating of the feast was not for enjoyment alone, it was also for enrichment and encouragement. Nehemiah 8.10, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There was great joy and celebration, but there was also an encouragement to the people. God is our strength. We have built these walls and reestablished our gates and reestablished our city because the joy of the Lord has been our strength. It's been what got us through all along. The world's joy is temporary and artificial, and when the joy of the world runs out and its pleasure becomes boring, it leaves us weaker than when we begin. Anybody experience that? Compare that with the everlasting joy of knowing the Lord. And I want to spend a moment on this point here and then we'll close. God does not give us joy instead of sorrow or joy in spite of sorrow. God will give you joy in the midst of sorrow. Catch that? What's that mean? Let me give you understanding on that. Because God's joy is not about substitution. He doesn't substitute joy for pain or joy for sorrow. It is transformation. 
He transforms sorrow to joy. How does that work? Well, Jesus himself gave us an illustration in John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. And he uses the illustration of childbirth. The same baby that gives the mother pain also gives the mother joy. Her pain is not replaced by joy, but transformed by joy. I can remember giving birth to Judah. We have an announcement. I can remember being there when my wife gave birth to our son. I can remember that night, how many hours was it? 30 minutes or so you were in labor. And uh, the hours of pain and back pain and all of what was going on. And, and, and as I got to see my son be born and they, they picked him up and held him and put, her, put him in her arms, it was like the last 17, 24 hours of just unbelievable pain was gone. Right, ladies? Now, I still had nail marks, and I hurt physically, but her pain was gone. And it's crazy, because they're down there doing stuff and taking stuff out, and, and it's, that's a whole mess, but she doesn't even care. Like, there's so much joy, so much joy in that baby, you don't even care. Was the, was the sorrow, was the pain taken away? No, it still was technically present but the sorrow was transformed into joy. Christ uses that illustration. It's like childbirth. When I understand the word of the Lord, he will not take away my sorrow, but he will transform it to joy in the midst of sorrow. When I understand him. It's a beautiful thing about children. And then for the next 18 years, pain returns. (laughs) And then I'm told sometime after that, the joy comes back. I think it's called grandchildren. Did the celebrations and the blessings of the celebration last forever? No, it certainly didn't. We know that. We know that Nehemiah isn't the end-all, be-all, and from Nehemiah to Christ coming on this earth, Israel was doing great. They never stopped celebrating and loving the Lord and finding joy in the strength of the Lord. And the truth is we need constant revival and we need constant reminder to be brought back to the Word of God, which is why church happens once a week. Because we go out and you're out in the world and you're out in your jobs and you're out in the frustrations of life all week and then you come back here and the point of reading the word publicly and not just hearing some sort of a ridiculous titled sermon that makes you feel good is that you are reminded and grounded again in the very thing that gives you joy is the word of God. And that's why we do this once a week. We come back and read it. Someone asked evangelist Billy Sunday, Billy Sunday, late 1800s, early 1900s, pro baseball player turned evangelist for about 20 decades, do revivals last? He was a big white tent revival guy, remember those? Uh, Do they last? And he said, no, but neither does a bath, but it's still good to have one occasionally. (laughs) What a great line. The church in America needs revival, but revival isn't going to be, in 2018, a white tent out on the lawn. Revival is going to be the changed hearts of the men and women in this room. It's going to be laying down our own pride, our own selfishness, our own wants and desires, opening this up, reading it not just publicly from this stage, but the leaders of your household reading it publicly to your children, reading it publicly in your neighborhoods to those who will listen in a way that loves them, not just standing out in the center of your cul-de-sac and screaming it. Please don't do that. (laughs) 
That's revival. That's where revival will happen. America needs it. And I'll close with this. Invite the band back out. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal, heal their land. Lord Jesus, come heal our land. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this series. Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you, Lord, that you inspired him and filled him with your spirit, Lord, that you brought him to a place where he found great joy in serving you, Lord. And then you brought along Ezra, Father, a man who never uh, left you despite much doubt and, and, pers and perseverance and pain through pain, God. And as Ezra read that word, Lord, the people, it said they grieved and they mourned because as your word was read to them, they realized that Almighty God was speaking to them. I pray this morning the same conviction would fall on this place, Lord, on my heart first, that I would see and be convicted of the areas that are not yours, and then to those in this room, Father God, that we would not walk out of this place having heard your word proclaimed loudly in the same state that we walked in, but that we, Father, would find a great joy in what it means to be called children of you, that we would know what it means to be heirs to a righteousness, Father, that we could not even think of attaining on our own, that we live in a time when Jesus Christ, our Savior, has come, paid the penalty for sin and death, and has overcome it in Jesus' name. Jesus, we praise your name this morning. Praise you, Jesus. I do pray that this morning for you. I pray that you would find joy in the midst of your sorrow. I'm still asking God for it. I'm still struggling as I stand up here before you this morning and saying, God, give me joy. There's so much sorrow right now and I need you. I need your help. And if that's you this morning, my goal for you is that you would come and you would spend time with the Lord either at your seat or at this altar. There is no shame in coming before the Lord and saying, God, I need that joy. My life has got sorrow right now. Don't be ashamed of that. You come forward. We're going to celebrate communion and close in worship here. Nehemiah and Ezra did when they proclaimed the public reading of the Torah. They proclaimed the public reading of God's law, a law designed and instituted by God himself to direct us towards the one who would save us from sin. And when we partake of communion gathered together corporately, we declare together in one voice that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior, that when he died on that cross, that truly the bread was his body juice that he gave that Thursday night with his disciples was his blood, and that because of his body and blood, we have forgiveness of sins, joy over sorrow, and freedom over death. That's what you proclaim when you partake of communion. So if you have a relationship with Christ, we invite you to come up to one of the three stations up front or three in the back, and then we'll close in worship. And if any, during any part of that time, as people are moving around, you want to come up and just spend time with the Lord at the altar, well then do that too, okay? time for you and the Lord to spend before you head back out into your busy week. Let's go ahead and do that now. You can stand and do that now.